Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So, really, really, really excited for today's episode. Luke is one of some one of those people that I've wanted to get on for quite a long time, and it was just kind of trying to figure out schedules, trying to figure out the proper information that I kind of felt that was going to be the right topics for you guys to learn from. And it, this is incredibly insightful, and I think it's going to help a lot, a lot of people. So, before I go anywhere. Guys, thank you so much for all of your amazing feedback with the client episodes. Thank you very much for all your feedback with the the guests that have come on. Thank you to the guests for coming on and sharing and giving so much of your, your spare time and free time to actually talk to myself and have that those amazing chats. And thank you for your feedback on the solo episodes as well. They do mean a world to me. I have no idea what I was. I write down a few words onto a page and I go into a realm. I don't know where I'm going, but hopefully those episodes will help. And so if you haven't listened back to the all or nothing approach or any of that kind of stuff, please do go back. So today's episode is with the amazing Luke Tullock. So Luke is a an amazing, amazing, amazing coach. And he he's a self-professed kind of coffee geek and he's a very, very smart dude. He is from Sydney and in Australia, he's worked there for now. He lives in Sweden with his amazing brand new daughter and uh, his partner. And then he loves training. Um, and this episode, and he's big into breaking down science and making it very approachable for people that they can dissect and kind of take information out of it. So, some of the information we talk about is breaking down some of the most complex information that's out there, going through all the massive research in it. So, this is me, my inner nerd coming out as well. But some of the stuff we talk about is what actually is enough sleep. We talk about how to actually design your own program. What is the best workout split? Adapting thing as a adapting training and nutrition as an actual parent and the stuff that he's done for himself. The truth behind training to failure and what that is and what that actually means. The importance of or the lack of importance of or we do, I'm going to get him to get divulge the information is in relation to the meal timing with weight loss. And in relation to protein and weight loss the importance of that is there a certain threshold that we need to hit or is it better to have smaller regular feedings or one big feeding of protein i'd really listen to that part and then there's the, the truth about kind of calories we burn the truth about kind of like is it is it better to use machines or free weights for your progress and then the, one of the biggest things is the first step to getting results and i think that part as re- is really going to land home as something that I resonate with and I think my clients who talk to me on a daily basis will resonate with and it's some of the stuff that we talk about it but Luke has brought it into his own own language and speak so really really hope you guys enjoy the episode with Luke Tullock if you want to work with Luke hit him up on his DMs hit him up on the links in the bio if you want to sign up for his newsletter or his emails please do the link is in the bio and I hope you guys enjoy the episode with Luke Tullock hey Luke how are we Doing very well, mate. Thanks a ton for having me on. Good to chat. No, I'm excited to have this chat because I know we were talking off air and I've been wanting to get you on for quite a long time. It's just figuring out the, the right time. And I know you've uh, you've had a new Bambino arrive as well. So trying to yeah. organize that around your schedule and stuff like that. So massive congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks a ton, man. Definitely an adjustment, but it's pretty fun so far. She's a bundle of energy, which like it's really interesting how different all the babies are. And we definitely got someone who's... Uh, her personality is very like interested in everything, so it's, it's a bit of work, but it's fun. Amazing. Um, for anyone who's not aware of the work you do, Luke, and your page and your amazing podcast and stuff like that, can you kind of tell us about how you got mm. into this and what you do on a, on a on a daily basis, really? Yeah, yeah. I'll give you the the quick rundown just so there's a bit of context to everything. But 
basically I, when I left school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I kind of got into personal training. Um, so I've been doing this now for 14 or 15 years or something like that. And uh, along the way, I've been to uni to study a bit of neuroscience. And my, my main thing, I guess, is that I'm pretty interested in the science of fitness, like training and nutrition and stuff. But I also think that it gets a bit complicated and we, we need to find some way of actually applying it without it getting too confusing. So I suppose my angle went from like, yeah, yeah, I know all this stuff. And I slowly realized that, you know, it's just confusing people and it's not really that helpful. So over the years, I kind of refined my approach a bit. And now like I'm mostly on um, Instagram and like through my email list, uh, my, my whole sort of philosophy is like trying to make fitness science easy to use. And so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment, man. So the people that I mostly deal with as an online coach are people who are probably like early to late intermediates. And um, I suppose we want to not have stuff too basic for them, but at the same time, I think it's, it's pretty easy to go down a deep rabbit hole with training and nutrition. And at the end of the day, like how much difference is it really making when we could be focusing on higher return on investment kind of areas. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Yeah, and like if you look at the information that Luke puts out, like you, you make very complicated research and papers into very like readable and digestible infographics so that everyone can understand it. So if anyone isn't following Luke, I'd highly recommend to do it. And you can see different infographics and stuff like that because some people like to be able to read the research. Some people just want to clip on it and say, right, this is what this research is saying. And one of the most recent posts you put up, I think, Obviously, it's a hot topic at the minute because you have a, a brand new baby uh, with sleep. Uh, yeah. So how, like, when I don't think people understand how important this actually is in being and being able to function, training, everything, and maybe. So how much sleep do we actually need according to the research that's out there at the minute? Yeah, I think it's something that's uh, a big rock. It's a high yield sort of area for us so it is definitely something we can focus on to improve your training and nutrition and mood and all this sort of stuff but the research indicates like a reasonably broad range of about seven to nine hours which is probably not surprising to a lot of people but it was quite interesting because i put a little poll up on my my stories on instagram asking like how much sleep do you get and there was a really big proportion of people who said less than six hours and it's pretty clear in the research that less than six hours is pretty much universally not so good for you know your health um, both cognitively cardiovascularly um, mood pretty pretty detrimental there training from recovery and that sort of stuff is also going to be compromised and um, you know the, there's some research showing that even if you put someone in the same sort of calorie deficit so that they lose you know two groups of people lose the same amount of weight from the same calorie deficit a much larger proportion of that weight is going to come from muscle mass and lean mass than from fat in the people who are getting uh, 5.5 hours a night versus the people getting eight plus hours a night. So it's kind of this universal thing. Now, seven to nine hours is a little bit of a, a broad range. And so some people just individually are going to do better on seven hours and some people are going to do better on more. So I did kind of make sure to say like, hey, it doesn't mean you have to get, you know, nine hours or you're screwed. But I, I think Certainly, there seems to be a lot of people getting like six hours or less and probably trying to bump that up a bit. It's going to be a pretty, as I say, high yield sort of strategy for you without having to change anything about your training or nutrition uh, to give you better results. And what do you think the difficulty is with people and their and their sleep? Do you think it's just like being wired all the time with stress? Do you think it's like social media? Do you think it's caffeine? Do you think it's 
daily stress or is it a combination of everything and what can be done to kind of tweak it or tweak routines yeah i think it's probably a combination of, of all of those things and maybe just not prioritizing sleep to be honest i mean i'm i'm there at the moment where i've got a young kid and, and sometimes the only time i have to myself is when mom and the baby go to sleep at you know 7 p.m and i get an hour to do whatever i want and it sometimes stretches out into two because i'm you know enjoying myself but uh I think it's it's about establishing a good routine and there's some really basic stuff you can do that people probably are aware of uh, with regards to what's called sleep hygiene, which is just establishing sort of good behaviors around your sleep patterns. But I think that the biggest stuff is just getting into a, a really good routine. So a predictable um, wake up time is actually pretty important uh, regardless of when you go to sleep. On the weekends, that also means that um, sleeping in, try to do it no more than an hour from your regular wake-up time because otherwise you actually produce what they call um, metabolic jet lag where you're essentially jet-lagging yourself because you, you, you're sort of telling your brain that it's different times of day during the week versus the weekend because of when you wake up and when you start getting exposed to light and food and, and movement and that sort of stuff. Um, so I think that's that's a really simple thing you can do. Another thing that a lot of people are pretty aware of these days because it's getting more popularized is the exposure to light or especially blue light in the evenings. And the reason for that is because when light hits our eyes, it travels along the ocular nerve and it actually hits the sort of central clock mechanism in our brain directly. That area is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So not to get too complicated, but it's just like a clock mechanism. It tells your brain what time of day it is. So if we're getting all of this light into our eyes from artificial light in the evening, then it's stopping your melatonin production and it's harder to fall asleep. Um, now, there's a big focus on that and that's cool, but I actually think that something that's underrated is getting enough sunlight in your eyes during the first half of the day. Yeah. Because if you think about it, that's telling your brain what time of day it is as well. And then it can go, oh, cool. Okay, well, this is morning, which means that you know, 12 or 14 hours from now, it must be evening and we'll start to wind down a little bit. So I think getting you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of, of sunlight in the eyes in the first sort of third or half of the day is also a pretty good strategy you can use. I mean, there's loads of other stuff. Uh, so if you have a bit of a Google of sleep hygiene, it'll give you some ideas, but I think that those sort of routines can be pretty big. Yeah, I think I think there's going to be a bite back on you telling people not to have a lie-in for too long on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's generally like, I'm going to hear messages back from that. Um, but it's 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 incredible. And I think the the daylight exposure first thing in the morning is is huge. Like I, I know it's the difference when it's the winter in particular here in Ireland. It's quite dreary. It's nearly always raining. Uh, and it kind of makes you try to put off the, the walk or whatever it may be, but it makes a massive difference to your head. It makes a massive difference to yourself because it just kind of calms you down. Like you're more stressed in the morning. I don't think a lot of people are aware of the kind of like the stress levels that they think that are completely utterly wired. A lot of people are completely wired to the hilt anyway, but we're not aware that our bodies are actually a lot more stressed and uh, completely in the morning. So if you can calm yourself down in any way or have some sort of routine, you're probably going to be onto something and routine is the word that you've kind of mentioned a few times there. If another thing that kind of comes in an awful lot is where do I start with my training? Where do I start with my program? And there's kind of like, there's the PT or coach and he's like, well, go get a PT or a coach. But if someone hasn't got the financial means, um, because we're, there's a lot of people unfortunately struggling right now since the pandemic, if someone was to look at kind of where to start with their training or where to start with their own program, how would you advise them to go and about design it and what 
movements and stuff to probably include or don't include yeah totally uh i think the first thing which might sound a bit like oh yeah duh when you when you say it out loud but it's like do something you enjoy you know as as exercise goes far too often i see people who think they have to do a certain form of exercise or a certain exercise in particular to get a result or whatever but doing something you enjoy is really the number one thing so don't get too caught up with well you know i have to do powerlifting movements if i want to be strong or whatever it is uh, so that's the first thing but you know if we're going to talk about perhaps putting together a resistance training sort of program lifting some weights um i tend to just try and cover all of my bases with general movement patterns that's kind of where i start with a lot of people so if you think about horizontal pushing and pulling vertical pushing and pulling some sort of squatty type pattern and some kind of more hip hinge bending over type pattern i think if you include some exercise that covers each of those then you're off to a really good start you're covering everything you're not missing anything out um you know so that goes to the question of like okay well what are the best exercises to do there uh is it should we be using machines should we be using free weights all that kind of stuff i honestly think it doesn't matter that much i think you need to just find something that again you enjoy doing that you can feel working your muscles well that feels comfortable to you um and then get after it and work hard and that's kind of like the the missing factor sometimes is just like actually getting after it a little bit so that's where i would start now you can get very complicated with training there's a million ways to skin a cat when it comes to training so um the big thing for me is like if i'm ever writing a program i just stop and ask myself like why am i doing this like what's the purpose of whatever i'm putting in because it's very easy to to start to go like well you know maybe i want to grow my arms or i want to grow my glutes or something like that and then you end up five six seven exercises down the rabbit hole and different rep ranges and different rest periods and all of this and sometimes it just helps to stop and go like hang on why am i adding in all of this other stuff is it really necessary uh so i i take a very stripped back approach to start with and then okay we can layer on top of that but pretty often i see people kind of go down the deep end a little bit too fast um so that's that's kind of my approach even for more advanced people to be honest yeah i've i've definitely changed things up recently from coming back from got an illness and stuff like that in relation to easing myself back in that a little bit more and also switching up to machines that a little bit more just to kind of stabilize muscles and stabilize um things a little bit more and definitely feeling a lot more of a stimulus um in certain things particularly on the shoulder movements i would have it i would have an issue with my left shoulder so definitely feeling a lot more uh tweak on that in relation to splits of workouts this is something that kind of comes in like what's the perfect split what's the perfect macro split what's the perfect perfect mm. perfect it's like right just calm down a little bit but we'll kind of rein it back what is there a particular split at certain stages that will suit individuals or is it coming back to the fact that what you said is doing something you enjoy or is it a combination of everything yeah it's probably a combination it's pretty funny because i think the the one of the things that i get most questions about is like the best training split and i actually think it's one of the least important things you should yeah. be worrying about um the idea is that as you get more advanced you're probably going to have to do a wider variety of different exercises or more training volume overall to keep getting results and that means that your training split might need to accommodate for more training days or something like that so the first thing we have to think about is what's realistic for you for example if i have a client come to me and go look i can definitely do three days maybe four 
I'm writing a program for three days, right? Because it's going to end up being three certain days that we can count on. Um, and from there, it's just about figuring out, well, how much work do I need to do? How many exercises? How many sets do I need to do? And just splitting that up over those days that you can train, really. Because if you think about it, let's say I needed to do or I wanted to do 10 sets of squats a week. If I try and put that all in on, on Monday's session, firstly, it's International Chess Day, so you, know, you have to do squats <laughs> on Tuesday. But secondly, like... By the time I get to, if I'm doing proper hard sets, if I'm doing set number five, six, seven on squats, those sets are now getting much lower quality. It's just a hard exercise, right? You're going to start to run out of steam. They're not going to be as good quality. So instead, you know, I can take those same 10 sets and instead of doing them on one training day, I can do them on two separate days during the week. And that means that I actually get higher overall output, higher quality of work. And you probably need to then do less work overall because the quality of the work you're doing is better. Um, so when you think about a training split, just think about like it doesn't have to be all legs on one day or all chest on one day or anything like that. It can be any combination of any movements on a particular day. But whatever enables you to perform at your best uh, that you can do consistently, realistically getting into the gym is probably the best way to split up your training. And you don't really need to think about it much more than that. How have you adapted your own training now as a new parent? Uh, that's a pretty tough one. So I do tend to do more like full body type stuff yeah. just because when I get into the gym, I kind of go, sweet, uh, maybe one legs, one push, one pull sort of thing um, because it is pretty unpredictable when I can get to the gym and I'm usually on a bit of a time limit. So one of the tricks that I've used so I don't uh, dick around too much in the gym is to actually set myself a time limit and go, right, um, you know, I want to be here sort of 45 minutes max. So maybe for each of those movement patterns I mentioned, um, I'm going to give myself, you know, 12 minutes and I'm just going to do as many sets as I can in that 12 minutes. Uh, if I'm feeling more tired that day because I haven't slept the night before, I'm going to rest a bit longer. I'm going to do fewer overall sets, which sort of auto-regulates my workload. And if I'm feeling great, I might rest uh, not as long. I might be able to fit in more sets and I do more work. And that way, I don't even need to think about how many sets and reps and stuff am I doing. I'm kind of just auto-regulating that based on how I feel. And I know my session is going to be done in 45 minutes. I can get back home and, and help mom out again uh, with the little one. So that's a little trick that I've used. But I think just total body sessions, basic movements that are going to cover a basic movement pattern. And then, as I say, getting after it. And I mean, you mentioned machines before. I think that's that's probably a really nice way of doing things as well because they require a bit less coordination. There's a bit more stability. Like it's easy to just jump on a leg press and just work hard. Like just push into the, into the foot plate and you're done as opposed to maybe doing some, you know, weird squat variation that requires a bit more stability and coordination and warming up. So that's my approach. Do you think that's come with experience though from you having had a serious training background? Like if you were to have potentially been a parent when you first started or whenever it was, would you have kind of had the recall to kind of say, no, I actually need to like take a step back or have you kind of learned your lesson? No, I think I've learned the lesson, man. I think I've come full circle, you know, because it's like when I first started, I started with um, some basic programming, some really basic programming and I got pretty strong and built a fair bit of muscle on that as a as a teenager uh and then as i got more into training it got more complex more complicated deeper down the rabbit hole um and then it's come back down again <laughs> so now it's like simple uh but work hard on the simple stuff and that actually works very very well i've, I've really discovered that um 
being in a subtractive mindset when it comes to training and nutrition is actually the better way to go. And I mean, absolutely, you can add in details and there are some things that will get you a little bit further, but sometimes it's not really worth all the extra effort and and thinking and, and trying to arrange stuff for an extra 5% when I could be just using that effort to actually get in and work hard on, on my basic stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and relation to kind of like the one of the big debates at the minute it was well, definitely amongst pts anyway is in relation to training to failure hmm. um like can you explain what training to failure actually means do enough people do it um and do should we do it or try to do it yeah for sure it's uh something that i'm really interested in at the moment um so this just to give a bit of contextual factors here just so people can understand why this is a debate in the first place so there was some really interesting research that came out a few years ago that kind of spun the whole muscle building rep range on its head because you know you'd often see like eight to twelve reps or something being programmed and this research showed that as long as you went to failure anything from about five reps to about 30 reps can build the same amount of muscle so now our whole concept of like wow the bodybuilding rep range is now much bigger than we thought it was. And the reason why that's the case, as we figured out, is because when you get really close to failure, uh, your brain basically has to recruit and switch on as many muscle fibers as it can to keep lifting the load. So let's say you're doing a set of like 15. The, the weight is usually light enough at the start that your brain doesn't have to use all of your muscle fibers. So it doesn't, right? Um, but those muscle fibers get tired as you go through the set. And so by like rep five, some of them have gotten really tired and they've fallen out of recruitment. By rep 10, most of them have gotten pretty tired and started to fall out of recruitment. And as we get to our 15 reps to failure, your brain's had to systematically switch on and ask all of your muscle fibers in a particular muscle to contribute to lifting this weight and that's important because when the muscle fibers contribute to lifting the weight they experience mechanical tension and that's actually what triggers muscle growth so that's why going to failure is pretty important but the question is do you have to go all the way to failure or can you just get kind of close enough and still get the same training effect and the answer is you probably don't have to go all the way to failure uh, there's a lot of research or I wouldn't say a lot, but a reasonable amount of research that's come out recently that says that getting within a couple of reps of failure is adequate to provide the maximum stimulus per set to grow muscle. Now, there is a question of, so, you know, you put out this sort of information on your social media and stuff, and then you get a bunch of gym bros coming in saying like, yeah, yeah, but most people don't train hard enough. They don't actually know what failure is. Yeah. And they have a point. They do have a point. So in the studies, it's a little bit difficult to separate out some of the research because their definition of failure is a bit different. Some studies define failure as like literally no matter how hard you try, you cannot complete another rep. And some studies allow their test subjects to go to what's called volitional failure, which is basically I chose to end the set. And as you know, like a lot of people, it'll get a bit uncomfortable and they'll yeah. just end the set a little bit early. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. We all still do it, right? I mean, it's look, some exercises, like if you're doing a squat, I mean, it's very rare to see someone push themselves hard enough to literally be unable to complete another rep. Most of us will quit well before that because it is hard and uncomfortable and that sort of stuff. So just to be aware that when we say you don't need to go to failure, um, what I'm typically talking about there is like genuine failure, like I could not do another rep. 
is what I would term failure. And I think that you can stay probably two, three, four reps away from that and still get the full effect of a set for muscle growth. Um, but what can be helpful sometimes is to try and go to failure just to see where your limits are because there's other really interesting research that looked at uh, how many reps people could do with a typical training load. So what they did is they brought a bunch of guys in who had a lot of experience bench pressing and they said to them, okay, uh, we're going to do sets of 10 on the bench press. So what's a weight that you would normally do for a set of 10 on your bench press? And they told the researchers and the researchers said, all right, cool. We're going to stick that on the bar and we're going to stand here and we're going to yell and scream at you until you literally hit failure on this bench press. And they did it. And almost all of them did more than 10 reps. Actually, all of them did more than 10 reps, but uh, a really big proportion of them, I I want to remember, I think I remember, about a third of them did more than 20 reps, in fact, meaning that they were training well, well within themselves. So I think it's really important to sometimes really push yourself on an exercise so that you can see what your limits are and you can experience what failure feels like. And then most of the time you can probably train two or three reps away from failure and that'll give you your maximum muscle building stimulus on each set. I think it's important to say like that people need to have the recovery and not be like running themselves into the ground in order to have that ability to train to failure. I think that's the that's the kind of the bit that a lot of people can't forget and do forget. It's like, well, I'm just going to out train my bad sleep. It's like, no, no, try and fuck. You shouldn't be trying to be sore after every workout. You shouldn't be sore after every workout. That means there's something up and something wrong. So you, as as Lucas said, you could be potentially trying to do less sessions in order to get better bang for your book, rather than trying to actually train and smash yourself every single session. So that's, that's I think that's an amazing synopsis. You. We we talk we, kind of weight loss, which is kind of like one of the big things that's like right there, and a lot of people are, that's their main goal when they kind of get a coach. Um, I think muscle building is kind of like it's it's improving. The likes of Brett Contreras has been on and talking about like uh, getting women strong, which is incredible. And the thing with kind of like meal timing and kind of weight loss, how important is it, um, or is it not important? Yeah, so I used to think it was basically completely unimportant. I thought it didn't matter whatsoever, but I did change my mind on that a little bit based on some some research as well. The reality is it's nutrient timing, like when you eat your meals and how many meals you have is still pretty far down the priority list. Like the main thing is how much energy are you actually getting in? Uh, how much protein are you eating? Because that's really important for maintaining your, your muscle mass. Uh, and beyond that, you know, we can think about other things like the micronutrients you're getting in your food and and the splits of fat and carbs and all this kind of stuff. The nutrient timing, I would say, matters uh, for sure. There is research indicating that having um, some sort of limit on your feeding window each day, having consistent meal times, that kind of thing, can have a metabolic effect. So, for example, um, the same amount of uh, energy intake per day might result in a different uh, effect on your blood glucose and fatty acids in your blood, depending on, as I say, when you eat those meals and how routine you are with your meals and that kind of thing. So a couple of things that can result in slightly better blood glucose changes, slightly better, um, outcomes can be, for example, eating pretty consistent meal times each day, as opposed to randomly all over the place, uh, having a feeding window each day that is, let's say closer to 10 or 12 hours as opposed to 14 to 16 hours. So when you eat your first meal, um, let's say it's at six o'clock in the morning, um, you want to then not eat 
your last meal after, let's say, 7 or 8 p.m. at night. Um, what was the other thing I wanted to mention? Yeah, I forgot. But it's essentially the, the consistency of the meals and the, the feeding window each day can have an effect on things like blood glucose, um, blood triglycerides, blood pressure, those sorts of things. However, a lot of those studies were done in people with existing medical conditions like diabetes or you know, they were obese or something like that. So I do think there's some evidence now that meal timing can have an effect on your health, but ultimately it's a very, very, very small player compared to energy balance, getting enough protein, generally eating unprocessed foods in a reasonable amount, that sort of thing. I have two main questions to come out of that in relation to protein. And I know this is a question I get an awful lot is, is it better to have, one big portion of protein and a smaller one after the day, or is it better to have regular servings of protein throughout the day? Well, the the first thing is just getting enough. That's like your number one priority. But if we wanted to optimize that a little bit, it's probably better to space it out in more even doses. And the reason is because uh, there's only so much of that protein that your body can use to sort of fuel muscle protein synthesis at a time. And that means that ultimately what we want is like maybe three or four roughly even doses of protein throughout the date if we wanted to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Um, if you were to sort of have one or two meals that had a lot more protein and a couple of meals that didn't have so much and you were still hitting your overall protein target, I think that's still fine. But if you wanted to optimize it a bit, I would space it out a little bit more. Awesome. And is there such a thing as kind of like it, the protein synthesis stops after 30, 30 grams? No, <laughs> no, there is not. So sometimes people will say like, um, yeah, you know, anything after 30 grams is wasted or like, can you even digest that much? The answer is you can digest that much. Your body will still use it. It might just take a bit longer to digest it. Remember that like when we eat something, it doesn't instantly become available to your body, right? It's sort of drip feeding into your bloodstream from your digestive system over time. And if you eat a bigger meal, it just sort of drip feeds into your blood for a longer period of time. So um, yeah, there's no such thing as, as like wasting the protein from that meal. All right, good. I think people should repeat that clip to themselves. Um, you, you, you said something about kind of like having an eating window. I know what's going to happen here is the intermittent fasting brigade are going to jump on that and say, well, this is better for what I'm trying to do is better for weight loss. Can you kind of elaborate on what you actually mean that potentially inter IF or intermittent fasting isn't as spectacular as people are making it because I think something came out very recently, like during the week in relation to IF and weight loss. And I think the media here and over in the UK and America have jumped onto it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So if people don't know, intermittent fasting is basically where you have a very limited eating window throughout the day. So it's typically eight hours is, is the standard thing, but some people do less than that. Um, and one of the advantages is that if you have less time during the day to eat, you're less likely to overeat during that time. I've sort of used intermittent fasting in conjunction with other tools myself with a fair bit of success and some people really like it. It's basically just skipping breakfast, right? Um, but the, the zealots really like to say that it's so much better for fat loss and it's so much better for your, for your health and it's good for longevity and all this sort of stuff. The research doesn't really indicate that like an eight-hour eating window is any, any like more superior than any other eating window provided it's not like a really long one so when i'm talking about limiting your eating window throughout the day i'm talking like 
if you're currently eating between between the hours that you're awake of like 14 to 16 hours, that's maybe a little bit too much. And we want a little bit more time where you're in a, a, what's called a fasted state, the metabolic state where you basically don't have any food in your system. And maybe we want to bring that down closer to like, let's say 12 to 14 hours as opposed to 14 to 16 hours. So that's probably still going to fit most people's normal eating pattern. It basically just means like, hey, uh, don't snack at night. It's probably going to be a little bit better for you from a metabolic perspective. Um, and, you know, if you do want to push it a little bit further than that and say limit yourself to a 10 hour or an eight hour eating window that's fine it could just make it a little bit easier to control your calorie intake but it's not doing anything beyond that it's just a tool to help you to control your food intake rather than like having magical effects per se on your metabolism or your longevity or anything like that i think it's a brilliant synopsis so thank you for that there's when people are in the gym and I think uh, there's calorie calculators on their watches or on their, wrist, their wrists and stuff like that. And a lot of people can, if they're using my fitness pal, they can connect it and it gets back and they eat more calories or whatever it may be. Can we kind of talk about kind of like, is the number of calories we actually burn through lifting weights as high as we actually think? Um, I saw I saw, I saw something by Stronger by Science yesterday on this after I sent over the questions. Can you talk, kind of talk about this a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. So... Um, first we can talk a little bit about the activity trackers themselves. Uh, they, they're not super accurate, right? Especially for calories burned. They do fine for things like steps and, and that kind of stuff, but for calories burned, they're not that great. Um, the reason for that is because, you know, if you have like a heart rate monitor and you're doing steady state cardio, we have quite a lot of data from research studies that can give us proxies for how many calories you might burn. You know, if you're uh, X age and you weigh Y amount and you're a male, then we can get a reasonable approximation if you're doing steady state cardio, how many calories you might burn per minute or something like that based on your heart rate. But for anything where your heart rate varies or the intensity of the exercise varies, all of a sudden, like, boom, it's very, very difficult to do without proper lab equipment measuring the gas exchange from your breath let alone, you know, uh, an activity tracker on your wrist. So they're actually really inaccurate for things like resistance training where you basically fluctuate between working really, really hard and then doing nothing at all. Um, Now, with that in mind, there has been a lot of research looking at how much energy is actually expended during a resistance training session. And it's not as much as you would think. So it still has a significant calorie burn. But if we were to, say, spend the same hour of training on doing cardio or something like that uh i think i did a a little back of the napkin sort of calculation and you would expect to burn maybe three to four times as many calories jogging per minute than you would lifting weights and these are pretty tough weight uh, lifting sessions that that these people were put through in the studies um and the reason for that is like if you think about it, w- what you're doing when you're lifting weights is you're working really hard for 20 or 30 seconds during a set and then you're sitting down and resting for a couple of minutes and then going again. Whereas if you're doing something like a, a steady state cardio, you're contracting muscle the whole time and burning energy the entire time. So the majority of your lifting session is actually spent not doing anything. Uh, now, people often say, well, what about the sort of afterburn effect? The researchers accounted for that and the, the sort of afterburn or the extra energy burnt after training is actually not that high. It's a really small amount. The second thing that people often say is, yes, but when you 
um, break down muscle and you have to build it up again and repair it, that costs a lot of energy too. And that, that is true, but it's still nowhere near as much as you would expect. And, and it's not going to make up for the difference between doing that and cardio. Um, you know, so I guess my takeaway from this was like, it's still definitely worth lifting weights. It's, it's going to drastically change your physique and make you stronger. And it's something that's really enjoyable. My big take is like, don't do exercise specifically for burning calories as your primary motive like that's obviously a really big benefit and if you're trying to lose weight like it's really helpful to burn some calories from physical activity but the first things you need to think about are what are the actual outcomes i want from this this training what physical characteristics do i want to improve do i want to get stronger do i want to build muscle do i want to get cardiovascularly fitter do i just enjoy whatever activity i'm doing those should be your primary motivation motivators and then you know, secondary motivator is maybe like, okay, how many calories am I burning um, from this activity? So, yeah, I think that's the that's yeah, the summary. That's, that's bang on. I'm also glad you kind of covered your you covered your back there at the end, because yeah. I think people will be like running. I'm going to do running now because it's going to burn more calories. But it's it's important to, as Lucas said, at the very very beginning of the whole episode was it's important to figure out what you enjoy. Like I haven't met anyone that actually enjoys running. <laughs> yeah. even I, i've i've interviewed ultra marathon runners and like i still don't enjoy running it just it's my for those first five ten minutes no one enjoys running but they get into the rhythm they get into the zone and they got this headspace and it's their escape time that's why they enjoy it but no one enjoys it for the first five ten minutes and i haven't met anyone that's any yeah. different um you record an amazing episode of your of the podcast and you talk about the first setup getting results is being aware and bringing awareness can you mm. talk about what you meant by that and what, what it actually what it actually means yeah man this is pretty overlooked so a, a vast majority of our behavior every day is subconscious it's i think some studies have estimated about 60 percent of our behavior is subconscious we don't even notice it and that means that a lot of the things that we are doing um we don't really notice and it could be sort of sabotaging our goals so to speak so ultimately if we want to achieve a goal what we need to do is try and align our behaviors in such a way that it moves us closer towards that goal right and if we're not even aware of some of the behaviors that we're engaging in how can you modify it or how can you replace it so the first thing for me is we have to get aware of our behaviors we have to pay attention to them only then can you identify if they're an issue, if they're aligning with what we're trying to do with our process. And if we need to change them or modify them, then obviously we need to know what they are and what triggers are there. Um, there's probably quite a lot of things that you that you sort of just do subconsciously that um, have maybe gotten you to where you are. And if you want to to be different, like let's say you want to lose weight, some of your behavior or some of your habits around food have to change right uh, and initially it's going to be pretty tough to do but as it becomes more of a subconscious repeated behavior it gets easier and easier and easier you know for myself personally i was a pretty chubby kid growing up i've had my periods throughout my life where i've i've had um i've been a little bit overweight and i've wanted to lose weight and now i find it really really easy to maintain because i've managed to identify habits and that sort of thing and and build them into my life. And like I say, the first step is just being aware of them in the first place. Otherwise you can't really do anything about it. So uh, that's a step that's sometimes missed, I think. I love that because I know I was talking about this with a client this morning in relation to the first step that we're gonna to need to look at is, it's not really the weight loss side of things, it's the, beha the behaviors and habits. Because mm. if we go straight into weight loss with 
like stress eating or emotional eating are going on or not being aware of certain things, you're basically like building the house on a foundation of matchsticks. But if we actually bring it back brick, 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 and step it up, step it up, and then we can ramp it up from there, you're probably going to get better results and and you'll feel better and you'll have a better foundation for yourself. And there will be certain things that will throw people off. Like it's not going to be this straight line as generic and as PT as it sounds. (laughs) I hate saying it, but it is one of those things like people think that life or training or weight loss or muscle gain is going to be a straight line, but there's going to be injuries. There's going to be kids getting sick. There's going to be you getting sick. There's going to be times where busy work life, all that kind of stuff happens, but it's about doing the, the being consistent. Like as Lucas said, like he's brought back his training and now he's trying to get better bang for his book in those 45 minutes rather than trying to say, right, I'm going to get an hour and a half and try to smash myself to obliteration when my sleep or my nutrition is on point. How have you changed your nutrition now as a new dad or have you, are you still in that kind of trying to figure that out? No, I think honestly, it's it's not changed too much. And the reason why is because I was, uh, you know, very routine. I had a very, very solid routine with eating and um I understand what might trigger me to like overeat or go for sweet stuff or something like that. So, you know, just to kind of tie this into our, our sort of previous question, like whenever you engage in a behavior, there's there's some sort of cue around that. So it might be an environment or a time of day. You can kind of think, you can run through the, like the who, where, what, when, why kind of yeah. paradigm to kind of think about why you did something. Um and I just have a very good handle on that around my eating habits. So I really understand that pretty well. And so for me, I, you know, it's reasonably easy to control um, reaching for sweet stuff or, you know, whatever. I have a real weakness for, for candy. And I live in Sweden at the moment. And man, the candy is absolutely off its head. It is insane. And you get these massive like pick and mix sections at every supermarket and stuff. But like I know that the, the cues that trigger me to like firstly buy the stuff and then eat it if it's within my eyesight, you know. So I know how to control that. And because I'm, I'm pretty good at controlling that environment, I actually have found it pretty easy to stay on track with my eating. So it, it is a testament to being able to use this process to recognize it. And it's going to be different for everyone. Like you might find that you behave a certain way around food um, when you're stressed or when you're with a certain person or at a certain time of day or in your, when you're in a certain place. And like I say, if you can identify that stuff, then you can create a plan around that and you can maybe adjust the cue or something like that. And then it makes it so much easier. It's like so much less friction. And the big thing that I took from what you said there about the kind of the candy and being aware and stuff like that, it wasn't down that it was down to willpower that it wasn't that you exactly. were. It was more about bringing awareness and having said to yourself, right, right, do I actually need this? Do I want this? What's going on with me? And being aware and saying like, how you're actually feeling. And that's the hardest part for individuals. And I've been there, you've been there. It's like actually saying to yourself, like what is actually going on right now? Because I know when I get stressed, I have the other response to a lot of people, which is I don't eat when I get mm. stressed. Um, and that's not it. And that's not healthy either. Um, people are like, yeah, but you lose weight. It's like, yeah, but that's not great either. <laughs> I struggle yeah. to put on the weight um, and put on the muscles. That's a bit of a struggle. So it's being aware and kind of saying like, what do I need right now? It's 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 a really brilliant question. Like, Am I hungry enough for fruit? Is yep. a great question. I'm just going to ask yourself, taking a big deep breath and say like, what the hell is going on right now? And it's not about beating yourself up or blaming willpower or blaming the weather or whatever. Maybe actually take yourself, take stock. And just and just take a big deep breath in. But look, I think there's so much in there from the sleep, 
from the programs to kind of like the workout splits from training to failure, meal timings, there's so much in there for a lot of people. Where can people kind of figure out and look out for your content and the podcast? Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks a ton, man. Um, really nice, fun variety of questions. It's good. Um, so my Instagram is Coach Luke Talek, and you can find my stuff at lukeTalek.com. I have a little email list and stuff as well there. Uh, and if you want to listen to the podcast, also just search my name and it should come up. Amazing, Luke. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a ton, man. Thanks so much for listening to the amazing episode with Luke and thank you for Luke to giving up so much of his spare time for having that open and honest chat. If you guys have enjoyed the episode, please do tag me up on your story and Luke up on your story. If you want, to, if you would love for you to leave a review, subscribe to the podcast and share it amongst your friends. If this episode has impacted you in any way, please DM me or whatever it may be. Share it as much as you can. So please, please, please share it. More people that listen to this, the more people can reduce their chance of yo-yo dieting so hopefully you guys have enjoyed the episode with the amazing loop to look